There was a, a young man that had moved from uh, a small town in one part of the country, and his uh, parents told him on a, a, a bad day for him that uh, they were moving to a big city in another part of the country. This was the first move that he had ever experienced. wouldn't be his last, but it was the first one that he had ever experienced. And it was complicated because when, when he moved out of this small town, it was a place where he knew everybody, knew how to get to everywhere he needed to go. He, he knew the school. He knew the friends. He played on the sports teams, but, but uh, uh, they were going to have to move. And so they... They say goodbye to all their friends, say goodbye to, uh, to the sports teams. They pack up the, uh, the, the trailer, the semi-trailer thingy, and the movers, Mayflower or somebody, packs the, the 18-wheeler full of all the furniture and stuff, and they make the journey across country to the big city. It, it was about two or three weeks uh, from the moment they arrived in the big city to the time that school was going to begin for this young boy. And, and he was nervous. He was nervous because he drove by the junior high where he was going to have to attend. He was going to be in seventh grade, and it's his first time to be in seventh grade. And, and uh, on top of that, the school was bigger than any building he had ever been in. He, he was he was frightened by the size, the enormity of it. In fact, uh, in his mind, and it, it, it was a reality, uh, the size of the junior high that he was going to be attending was bigger than the small town in which he lived. He had about two or three weeks just to get nervous about going to the first day of school. They went with the, his parents to the uh, to the school, he got registered, got his schedule, but, um, but he forgot everything. It was just like a huge maze the building was, so, so he, he was having a hard time figuring out how he was going to get from point A to point B, how he was going to get from class one to class two to class three to class four. It wasn't elementary school anymore. He wasn't going to be able to sit in his one class all day long, skipped only by, uh, uh, interrupted only by recess and lunch. He, he had to go from, uh, from class to class to class to class, subject to subject to subject, and, and, and he was nervous about that. On top of not knowing anybody, it was an unfamiliar setting. And, and as much as he studied the map of the school, he still was nervous about how he was going to get to where he needed to go. First day of school comes along and he loads up his backpack with all the stuff he thinks he might need and, and, and he puts it on his back and he makes his walk to school. And, and as he's walking, he's filled with nerves. He sees people around him and they're all going to the same school, but he doesn't know anybody, so he just puts his head down and walks. He finally gets to the junior high and, and scores and scores of people piling into the school, wave after wave after wave. And, and he sees all these people going into one entrance and he thought, that ought to be the way I go. He, he didn't know which entrance it was and didn't even know if that was the right hall to be on, but 
That's where everybody else was headed, so he's going there too. He gets into the school, and he's turned around immediately. It's not the entrance he had gone into before, and, and so he's already lost, but, but, but he looks at his schedule, and he says, okay, I've got to figure it out. And, and he doesn't ask anybody because he's too proud or too embarrassed or probably a mix of both of those things. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's the new kid that doesn't know how to get to where he needs to go. So he just tries to figure it out on his own. And eventually he does. He finds the hall that his first class is on. And he, he walks down that hall and finds the room. And he goes into the room and he sits down in the first open desk. And he puts his book bag down and he puts his uh, hands on the desk and he puts his head down and he just waits. The bell rings, the teacher comes in, begins to call roll. She calls his name, he says, I am he. And that's about all he says. The bell rings to end the class and he gets up and he's already uh, looked at, at where his second class is supposed to be and uh, and, and, and even though he doesn't know where it is in relation to the room he's in, again, he's not going to ask. He's too embarrassed or proud. He doesn't want anybody to know he's the new kid, so he just starts walking. And typical guy fashion, he doesn't know where he's going, so he walks faster. And walks more determinedly, and, and he's walking and walking and walking through hallway after hallway, looking uh, ever so surreptitiously at, at, at room numbers and just seeing if he's in the right place. And, and he feels that ticking going on in the back of his head, knowing that it's about time for the bell to ring and he's almost late for his class. And, and that, that tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock makes his pace a little more urgent, but he doesn't want to ask how to get to where he needs to go out of pride or fear or embarrassment. The bell rings, he's late, but then he sees his hallway and he makes his way to the classroom. The door's already closed and he bundles up his nerves and he, and he stretches out, he opens the door, he walks in, he finds the first open desk, he sits down, he puts his book bag down, head down, and he waits. The teacher's already calling out roll and she calls his name and he says, I am he. And he puts his head down, and he says nothing else. He looks at his schedule while the teacher's introducing the students to the class, and he sees where his next class is P.E., and he thought, that should be simple. I heard the sights and the sounds and even the smells of the gym earlier on my journeys. I know where that is. Everything's going to be fine. The bell rings, he gets up, and he makes his way to the gym. As he walks into the gym, he sees a, a, a group of guys sitting on the bleachers to the right, and he thinks to himself, of course, that's my class. And he goes over, he drops his book bag, he, he, he puts his head down, sits on the bleacher, and he waits. And while he's waiting, he begins to look around, and he sees these guys, and they seem maybe a little bit older, but it's Jim. It, 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 it could be 7th, 8th, and ninth graders in this gym class. I don't know, he said. And, and so he just sat there, and, and then a coach comes in, and this is the coach of the class, and the coach begins to call roll. And the young boy is waiting to 
hear his name and say, I am he. But his name never comes. The coach finishes calling roll and the young boy's name is never called. And immediately he knows the worst. He's in the wrong class. Just the thought of it, tears begin to well up in his eyes. The embarrassment, the fear, the insecurity, the confusion. What am I going to do now? The coach, not known for his sensitivity by any, sees this young kid, tears welling up in his eyes, and he walks over and he says, what's wrong? Again, not known for his sensitivity, he doesn't say it quietly. He just says, what's wrong? And the kid said, coach, you didn't call out my name. Coach said, what's your name? And the kid told him, and coach looked at his roles, and he said, I didn't call out your name. And the kid was like, duh, that's what I just said. The coach said, you're in the wrong class. And again, the kid was thinking to himself, yes, I get that. Coach said, let me see your schedule. And the kid opens up his folder and he hands the coach his schedule. And the coach looks at him and went, ah, I see what's wrong. You're supposed to be in lunch. So the kid feels the tear begin to streak down his face, thankful that he knows where he's supposed to go, but embarrassed beyond measure. He picks his schedule up, he picks up his book bag, and he starts racing out the door as fast, without, as, fast as he can without running. He makes it out the door, and about halfway down the hallway, he hears somebody from behind him say, Hey! kid doesn't stop. He just keeps walking. But again, hey, wait up. So the kid turns around and he sees this guy running toward him with a big smile on his face. And he said, hey, my name's Paul. What's yours? Kid tells him his name. He says, hey, listen, I saw that you went to the wrong class, and he started laughing. He said, we've all done that. Don't worry about it. Are you going to lunch right now? And the kid said, yes. And Paul said, hey, listen, let me take you to lunch. Why don't you sit with me? I'll introduce you to my friends. Let's just kind of hang out together. And the deep relief in that young man's heart. He didn't know who Paul was. Paul could have been a serial killer. It didn't matter. The only thing that matters is that Paul cared enough to talk to him. Paul took him to lunch, sat him at the table, introduced him to friends. They had conversations. They asked where the kid was from. They they asked what the kid liked to do. The kid asked questions of them. The kid made new friends over a cafeteria lunch, all because Paul cared enough to help a kid go from confusion to clarity. And even though that event happened more than 30 years ago in my life, I remember it like it was yesterday. All the fears, 
the beating heart, the tears, everything welling up in me. I feel it right now. And then the relief that Paul wanted to spend some time with me and help me through the day. There are people that we have in our lives all around us every single day who are walking in deeper confusion than a seventh grade kid trying to make it from one class to another. There are people that we encounter and every day they're filled with the insecurities and the fears. They may cover it with a lot of bravado. They may cover it with a lot of activities. They may cover it with a lot of different different, uh, 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 laughter and and, and fun times, but the bottom line for them is there is a hole in their soul that they cannot fill. They are walking in darkness and they're looking for answers to their life's riddle and they can't find it. They're, they're hoping against hope that the next little thrill is the one that will answer the, the, the pain of their soul or the, the next relationship is the one that will, that will uh, dispel the darkness or, or the next The next job, that's what they're looking for. Anything, anything, just anything that will take away the fear and the anxiety and the loneliness and the hopelessness and the despair. And God sends you and me to be light in their darkness. And this is what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. We, we know that, that, that Jesus calls us, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus has called you the light of the world. And that's not a light that is simply, I am, I am going to heaven when I die. Light has purpose, and that purpose is to push back darkness. That purpose is to help show people the way. And what, what we need to understand is that you as a follower of Christ and me as a follower of Christ, we have a purpose. And that is to help people who are swirling in a, in, in a sea of despair, help, help people who are stumbling and fumbling in the darkness, help them find light and life. Our, our purpose is to help those who are far from God find life in Christ. That's our purpose, and and that's your purpose, and that's my purpose, and if indeed you're a follower of Jesus, you are the light of the world, and and we we can be light in in, in a dark world when we listen well to others and get to know what makes their heart tick, and we, we, we... we, we can be light in, in the darkness when we intercede for others, when we pray for them. Have you been praying for those people on your list? Today, I want you to see that we can be light in a dark world. When we follow the example of Jesus, you look in, in Luke chapter 19. And Jesus is going through the city of Jericho. And he comes upon a guy named Zacchaeus. Beginning in verse 5, it says, so uh, I'm breaking out my glasses. So, uh, and when Jesus came to the place, that's where Zacchaeus was. When Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was, Jesus looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus made haste and came down. He was in a what? He was in a tree. What kind of tree was he in? Y'all are so good. 
So Zacchaeus made haste and came down out of the sycamore tree and received Jesus joyfully. But when the religious people saw it, they they all complained, saying, Jesus has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Boo. And Jesus sets an example for us to follow, and that example is we share the light of the gospel when we gather with people intentionally. When we get together with folks who are far from God. And see, here's the thing. All of us, as followers of Jesus, we're doing a good thing right here. See, we've gathered together, right? We've gotten together with but with, with, with followers of Jesus, and that's what we're supposed to do. We, we should never forsake the assembling of ourselves together as followers of Christ. We, we, there, is, there is no legitimate excuse for you as a follower of Jesus to act like you should not be in corporate worship. There is no legitimate excuse. It's disobedience to God when you decide, hey, listen, I don't need corporate worship. That's like saying a, a fish saying he doesn't need water. This, this, you're being here, this is you being part of the body of Christ called First Norfolk. It is not optional. It is an act of obedience and necessary as part of the family of faith. There's no excuse for you not being here. I got a couple amens out of that. No, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty good. That's pretty good. But this is good. This is what we should do. But that's not what Jesus did in this passage. See, what happens is we love to get together with people who are followers of Jesus. We love to hang out with those who are, who are already followers of Christ. And, and, and we should. That's, that's appropriate and that's right. But here's what Jesus is setting the model for us today. We need to be getting together with people who are far from God. We need to be getting together with people who don't know Jesus. We need to get together with people who don't have the same values we have, don't have the same moral compass that we have, don't have the same lifestyle that we have. I I mean, we need to be gathering with them, getting together with them so that we can help dispel the darkness. Why? Because people are searching. Zacchaeus, he was searching. He had his life together according to the measure of some. He was winning and winning big. You look in, in, in verses 1 through 4, it says that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Here's the description. He was chief tax collector. That meant he had power and position, and he was rich. Dude had influence. The dude had money. Verse 2, and he sought to see who Jesus was. So he climbed up a sycamore tree to find out who he was. Get the picture. This Zacchaeus, he could buy answers to a bunch of questions. He could buy the best lifestyle, the best pleasure, all the joys that that you could ever want. He could buy all those things, and he probably had tried it. He could force people to do things. You realize he had the power of the Roman government behind him. What he wanted, that's what got done. He had a position of influence and power. But Zacchaeus was searching. 
There was something wrong in the middle of his soul. He knew it. There was something lacking in his life. He was stumbling and fumbling in darkness and he was longing for somebody to turn on the light switch so he could see which way to go. He was wandering around in the chaos of his own confusion, filled with fear and insecurities and loneliness. Uh, he, he, and he was waiting for somebody to say, hey, Zacchaeus, let me help. He was searching. There was a hole in his soul that he could not fill, and the only way to fill that hole in his soul was through a friendship with God. And Zacchaeus didn't have it, couldn't find it. There are people that you encounter every day searching just like that. There are people that you work with every day and been working with those people for 20 years, and they're searching, and you have acted like it's nothing. There are people in your neighborhood. They've been your neighbors for, for, for days or months or years or, or whatever. And, and, and they're searching and you acted like it's no big deal. People you go to school with. And they have a lot of words and phrases about how, the, how, how, how they've had thrills and chills over the weekends. But the reality is... There's a hole in their soul and they're searching. And Jesus stops underneath a sycamore tree and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up, get down, because I got to spend the day with you. Jesus had a mission. And that mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. That's verse 10. When Jesus explains his actions to, to everybody around, he says, hey, listen, I'm here to seek and to save the lost. I'm here to help the searching and the hurting find the answers to their struggles. And friends, as followers of Jesus, that's why we're here. God has left us on this earthly plane to bring him glory by helping those who are lost in darkness find life through faith in Christ, not to get together and make ourselves just feel good by being together. He's called us to action for his glory with people who have a lifestyle that is aberrant and wrong and pitiful and ugly and hateful and offensive to our religious sensibilities, to, to, to get together with those people. Do you realize, do you realize that, the, that we are living in a day and a time in Americanized culture where fewer people are coming to church because it's church? People are not showing up at church just because it's church. And we can say, well, that's their loss. Well, it is. But that's not the end of the story. God calls us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and help those who are stumbling and fumbling in the darkness Find light. He calls us. 
to be as he was, a friend of sinners. Hey, listen, I know it can be uncomfortable if you're a non-smoker to hang out with someone who's a smoker. I know that's uncomfortable. I I get it, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? I mean, make you want (coughs) to, you know? The calling of God on your life and mine means that we need to suffer through the pain and the struggle and the discomfort and sit in the smoking section with those who are far from God to help them find life in Christ. Let me ask you a question. In this passage, there, there are, three, there are three, three characters. There's Zacchaeus. He's the one that's searching. There's Jesus. He's the one that has it all together and has the answers. And then there's the they. They complained, saying, he has gone to be the guest in the house of a sinner. That's the they. God help us never to be the they. We say amen, but the reality is we, we all have a tendency to be the they. We all would rather, oh, you mean the pastor? Oh, I saw him the other day. Yeah, he was down at Chili's, and he wasn't sitting where they have all the have all the food. He was sitting in the bar section talking to somebody, and I saw a drink on that man's table. I don't know whose it was because he was sitting across from a guy and and there was a glass of beer there and there's a pastor on the other side. All I can say is we we need to call the deacons. (laughs) And don't think for a second it wouldn't happen just like that. When in reality, the real story would be The pastor is sitting there breaking bread with someone who doesn't know Jesus, who's been living a life that is filled with with hopelessness and despair, that's swirling in a sea of darkness, and the pastor is sitting there, and there's Pastor Eric talking to him and being a friend to this guy, trying to help him see that the only way to hope is through Jesus Christ. Now, that's the true story of that conversation, but the they's walk in and they see the beer on the table and they forget everything else because, well, who does he think he is? Do you realize that Jesus was ready to risk being misunderstood for the sake of giving life to those who were dead? in their sin. And we, followers of Jesus' church called First Norfolk, we better be ready to risk being misunderstood in order to take the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are wandering and lost in the darkness. Stop worrying so much about what they have to say about you. I mean it. Stop worrying about it. Worry only what God has to say about you. 
people are searching and they're urgent. They are urgent for life. And God has put you in the path of them to help them find life. For Jesus, it was a meal. He said, today I'm going to spend the day at your house. Not the first time he had done that. At the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there were two guys, a guy named Andrew and a guy named Philip, who saw that Jesus heard what, what John the Baptist had to say about it. And so they begin to stalk Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, Why are you stalking me? What do you seek? And, 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 and Andrew and Philip said, We just want to know more about you. And Jesus said, Come and see. And, and so Jesus spent the day and broke bread with Andrew and Philip. And and, and their lives were changed and transformed by that encounter. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus hanging out with, a, a, again, a, a risky situation, a woman in the middle of the day at a coffee shop or the well. And they're sitting there at the coffee shop, and Jesus is sitting across the table from her, and, and, and he begins to talk to her and ask her pretty pointed questions. But, but the reality of breaking bread with her, drinking water with her, the point was because Jesus gathered with her and connected with her and gave wings for the gospel to uh, 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 saturate that woman's soul, and, and she was transformed. She was rescued. Here in Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, I want to I spend the day at your house. And Zacchaeus said, come on. The lesson that we need to learn here is that, that, that gathering with others gives, gives opportunity for the gospel to, to, to saturate a soul, getting together and, 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 and spending time um, across a, a meal or, 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 or hanging out at a, at, at, at a restaurant. It, it gives opportunity for the gospel to, to advance in that person's heart. For, for Zacchaeus, everything changed after that encounter with Jesus and, and gathering with him. And, and for us, when we are spending time with people who are dwelling in darkness but searching for light, and we, the light of the world, spend time with them and gather with them, make no mistake, there is some divine interruption that can come, a, a divine um, a movement that can take place that will transform that person's life. But we got to tell people who we really are. You know what happens? We, we get together with people, and we hide who we really are. I don't want anybody, I don't want any, I don't want anybody to think I'm a weirdo. I don't want anybody. I'm not saying sing uh, the doxology for a prayer at dinner. I'm just saying be who you really are. See, so often we gather with people who are far from God, who have lifestyles that are far different than, 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 than what ours is. And, and, and out of fear or anxiety or uncertainty, we, we don't want them or, or this misguided idea that we're not supposed to talk about those things. We, we, so we, we don't tell this person who we really are. Is there somebody you work with and you've been working with them for, uh, for, for, for months or, 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 or years or even decades? You've worked with them, but they don't know who you really are. 
They don't know the Jesus that has transformed your life. They don't know that, that you are a committed follower of Jesus, that, that he has given you life where the, you, you once were dead, that, he, that, that, that he's transformed the, the darkness in which you were swirling into light and, and your fulfillment, your happiness, your joy, everything about you swirls around Jesus Christ. That's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. Do they know that? So when you have dinner or coffee with somebody. I'm not saying you got to give them the whole load of hay, but I am saying that you got to show them something. Look, I go to dinner with somebody. You know what I'm going to be talking about? Just naturally, just naturally. I'm talking about my wife. <laughs> I'm talking about my children. And yes, I'm talking about fishing too. Why? Because those are things that shape who I am. Goodness gracious, God, help me if I'm disobedient and I talk about how he's changed my life. I mean, again, you don't have to give them the whole load of hay, but you have to show them that Jesus makes all the difference for you. Are you telling anybody? Stop putting the light under a bushel. Shine. Share. Show. Help people see that Jesus has made all the difference. Look, I know there's a fear that people are going to think we're strange. You need to be as normal as I am. I wish that you would exceed my normalcy. Guys, listen. Just be who you are. The whole idea that etiquette says, well, you're not supposed to talk about religion or politics at dinner. That is insane. How can you have dinner with somebody and have an honest conversation with somebody and not talk about the one thing that has changed your life? You got to talk about Jesus. If you're not talking about Jesus, then somehow, somewhere, you're being disobedient. I believe it. You say, oh, I can give you ways that I'm not being disobedient. Okay, that, that's between you and God. But I can tell you right now, if I'm sitting across the table with somebody who's searching for light and I don't shine it, then I'm telling you I'm being disobedient to God. We need to give the gospel room to move with those who are searching and lost. I know it's hard. I mean, and, and again, please, no, I'm not, I'm not standing here as someone who's got it all figured out. It's hard for me. I know it's hard for you. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, I do believe, look, I believe that if each one of us, seven, eight hundred people in this room right now, what would happen in the city of Hampton, in the seven cities of Hampton Roads, if each one of us committed, I'm going to get together with someone this week and I'm going to shine the light of Jesus? What would happen? If you would stop, if we would stop just talking the game and start living the life, what would happen if we would just somehow see that all of our religious words and phrases and showing up on a weekend, that's okay, but, but unless we're living the life, a life of obedience to God, unless we're fulfilling the mandate that he's given us, you are the light of the world. Unless we're following the example of Jesus. Zacchaeus, quickly come down, for today I must stay at your home. 
Unless we are filled with the urgency of Jesus, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Guys, listen, today's the day everything can change. it. If this body of Christ called First Norfolk, if each one of us in this room today committed ourselves to get together with just one person this week who is far from God but searching, I can tell you everything would change. That's what makes a church pleasing to God. That's what makes a church explode. That's what does it. It's when a church is committed to obedience. Do you know what kills a church? One thing. Disobedience to God. That's it. That's it. That's what kills a church. And that disobedience is found with me and it's found with thee. So what are we going to do to change that? God's given us such opportunities. Oh, my soul. 800 here on mission this week. Oh, my soul. What could happen? Everything would change. But I know it's hard. It's hard to shine light when darkness is all around you. I get that. It is. But that's why we gather here with the body of Christ. That's why we gather here. I know that for many of us, we find ourselves swirling in a pit of our own pain. And we fail to see the provider. For many of us, we're... we're, we're We're stuck in the moments of our own suffering and we forget to see our Savior. We we see our misery, but we forget that He is our refuge and our strength. We see our difficulties, but we fail to see the Deliverer. So often what happens is is we become consumed with all the the ugly that goes around us and and all the pain that's within us and and we, we become focused inward like that. And I get it. I've done it. I do it. But when we gather together as the people of God called First Norfolk, it's this moment where we have the privilege, the opportunity to get our focus off of this and get our focus on him where we start focusing on our Savior more than our suffering, where we focus on our Deliverer more than our difficulties, where we focus on our refuge more than our misery, where we focus on the one who provides for us rather than the pain in which we're suffering. Today's the day for us to change our focus. This is the moment. See, that's what worship is. Worship is where we stop looking primarily at self and we look primarily at our God. So in these next few moments, my prayer is for you and for me to worship God, to set our gaze on Him so that in the final course of uh, of this day, we would be inspired and encouraged and equipped to leave this place and go into our community and en- engage and gather with that person that is searching, stumbling and fumbling in the dark, to get together with them so that the gospel would have 
room to change that person's life.